Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired Movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests join me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their life. But maybe even more importantly than their life, you're going to have real ideas, maybe a shift in your mindset and practical actions to apply in your own life. Before we get started today, and you're going to love today's episode, by the way, but consider checking us out online. All the social links will be found at my primary website. That site is johnolearyinspires.com. Again, it's johnolearyinspires.com. It's where we keep our blogs, our vlogs, our favorite quotes, our reflections, information about the book On Fire and past podcasts. It's all worthy. It's worth checking out. Check it out, johnolearyinspires.com. You know, when you are a writer or a speaker or a podcast host, you're always looking for inspiration. And one of the places that I get mine is an incredible lady named Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen Rubin is the author of, I believe, eight books, including the blockbuster New York Times bestsellers, The Four Tendencies, Better Than Before, and the one I'm sure every one of you have heard of, The Happiness Project. Great books. She is an enormous uh, author. She has a huge following both online and in print. Her books have sold more than 3 million copies worldwide in more than 30 languages. She's also an award-winning podcast host. She's got Happier with Gretchen Rubin. She discusses great habits and happiness with her sister, Elizabeth Kraft. She's been named by Fast Company, one of the most creative people in all of business. That's a big one. And she's a member of Oprah's Super Soul 100. But maybe even more importantly than all of that today, my friends, she is with us on the Live Inspired Movement. So buckle up, open up your minds and your hearts, grab your journals. You will need it today. Grab a pen, make sure there's plenty of ink, and get ready for the ride of a lifetime. My friends, introducing to you our newest friend, Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Now, we, we are thrilled to have you. For those who aren't really all that familiar yet with your work, Gretchen. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Um, I'm a writer and a podcaster. Um, I write about human nature and specifically about happiness, how we can make our lives happier, healthier, more productive, more creative. By uh, I wrote a book about how we can change our habits because obviously habits have an important part mm-hmm. to play. Um, and my most recent book is called The Four Tendencies. It's about a personality framework that explains why people have different patterns in the kind of habits that they can form or the kind of habits that they find challenging. So so basically, all my stuff is looking at the question of human nature. Why are we the way we are? How can we change if we want to change? Um, Just looking at that from a lot of different angles. I'm fascinated by how you pick topics and go as deep as you do in them and become really expert over them by the end of it. But before I start asking you about your current work, uh, what you're excited about going forward, I'm going to back the train way up. I know you live today in New York City, but you weren't always in New York. You grew up in the Midwest. I think we share the same statehood of Missouri. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. I'm an East Sider. I think you grew up on the West Side. Yes, I'm from Kansas City, so I like literally for a while lived on state line. Um, so I was very close yeah. to Kansas, but I am in this one metropolitan area, but I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. So let's talk about that a little bit. I think who we are today is informed by how we grew up and who influences us as kids. So talk about growing up in Kansas City. What was that like? You know, I had a very kind of uh, regular childhood. You know, I had a dog, I had one sister, I, you know, and a mom and a dad and a yard, and um, uh, I, I had a very nice childhood growing up. I, everybody in my family is um, great, so mm-hmm. I'm really lucky in that way. I have a great family, so that, that, that's the most important thing. Those are the and families you got to run from. Yeah, and I had a great school, so um, I was really lucky. What, what, tell me about your mom. Um... 
it's hard to capture people in, um, what do you want to know? Tell me how she influenced you, not only today, you know, as you show up on this podcast and all the work that you do and the way you raise your kids, but even give me some context of what it was like growing up with her. How did she influence you as a little one? My my mother, one of the things that I think sounds very boring, but is actually one of the things that you appreciate more and more as you grow older, is that my mother is utterly reliable. Hmm. Um, I never doubted for one second that my mother would be there for me or come through for me. And if she told me she would do something, I knew that she would do it. To the point where one time my sister, she was supposed to pick up my sister from some party, like, you know, like little birthday party, and she didn't show up, and my sister went into hysterics because she's like, oh, my God, she must have been in a terrible accident and of course for the one time of course this is the one time that we all remember was the time that my mother actually did forget and did forget to pick her up but that's how how reliable she is and as i get older i realize that it sounds so boring but that is actually a really important thing and my mother also has a big sense of adventure like Mm. she comes from my both my parents come from north flat nebraska and so they're from a small town in the midwest but they are up for any adventure they're not intimidated by anything they're always open to new experiences and um interested in everything both of them interested in everything my mother has has loves beautiful things and has a real appreciation for kind of the things of the world um and uh, and she also loves to read so i think that she was always very encouraging of my um my my love of reading which is quite excessive, but yeah. she never tried to um, encourage me to, to do less of it. Gretchen, did she take you on the adventures when you were little? Um, not particularly. I mean, you know, no. Because I mean, you're, you're a globetrotter these days. I'm curious, did you get that from the, the, this, this mother who kind of was dragging you in suitcase all around uh, the state and the country and no. the world? No. At that point, we weren't really traveling, no. What about your dad? What was he like? Uh, my father is a person, again, a person who's utterly reliable, has a tremendous <laughs> sense of fun, is interested in everything, interested in everything, can kind of like knows everything about Kansas City. If I'm like, what's happening with that building? Like he <laughs> right. knows. I don't know how he knows. Um, and uh, it's just he's a happy person. And I realized, you know, in my study of happiness, I realized it's very easy to take it for granted that someone seems very happy and cheerful and easygoing and to just think like, and to really take for granted and sometimes kind of um, exploit that in a way to have them absorb your kind of negativity or your bad moods or your mm-hmm. annoyances. And as I've studied it more and more, I realized like what, an, what an effort and what discipline it takes to be kind of unfailingly um, good natured. Um, and, um, yeah, so he's and uh, and he and he's a very happy lawyer. So he was a very good model of someone who's very happy in his work. When I'm one of six, you mentioned that you're one of two. You have a little uh, a sister that not only do you hang with and, and uh, enjoy, but you work with to a degree. So t- talk about your sister growing up. Who was older, first of all, and what was her personality like? Um, well, you know, I'm five and a half years older than my sister. So when we were growing up, we always got along very well. But you know, five and a half years when you're young is a pretty big gap. So for a long time, we got along well, but we didn't. Our, our worlds weren't particularly yes. merged. Um, and then, as we got older and older, we began to sort of uh, uh, have a more have a deeper relationship. Like we traveled to Europe together, and um, we would visit. You know, when she was in college and I was in law school, or when I was in college, she would. You know, we would visit. Um, but. Um, but so, and it's funny because we both are ended up writers. So I'm a writer. My sister's a very accomplished television writer and producer. Mm-hmm. And growing up, nobody had any sense that this was coming. Like, it wasn't like we were there, like, you know, what was it, the Bronte sisters or the, you know, we're yes. like doing like these <laughs> yes. novels together and all this stuff. We never did any of that. Um, so everyone's very astonished that we both ended up being professional writers because um, that, that really d- didn't seem um, particularly um likely when we were growing up but um yeah so now now we're very very close and we're very similar in a lot of ways so we're very different in some ways but growing up we we were just um we didn't we didn't spend as much time together you you, you mentioned law school and you mentioned that you're currently a writer when you were when you were still a little, a little one in Kansas City with that pointing out all the buildings and who's doing what where did you have a vision of one day writing you know, this is the thing about me. I never think about what am I going to do in the future. Like, and it, I know everybody's always like, where do you want to be in five years? And like, what do you want to do when you grow up? I mean, I really never thought about it. Hmm. 
And to kind of a weird degree. I, I just, I, and even like now, I don't sort of think about like, well, what am I going to be doing in five years? I, I, I sort of think about, well, what do I feel like doing now? Um, and, um, and sometimes that's worked well for me and sometimes that's worked less well for me, but it wasn't like I had dreams, um, certainly not of being a writer. No. Did you have dreams of being an attorney? No, no, I was just like, you know, I guess I go to law school. Yeah. Well, I was like, I went to law school for the same reason. A lot of people go to law school, which was, I was good at reading and writing. It's a great education. I can always change my mind later. It sets me up for a lot of things. Um, I'm, you know, I'm really good at kind of ex- like doing well in school. So right. I was like, well, I'll take the LSAT and see how I do. And then I'm like, well, I did pretty well in the LSAT. I'll apply and see where I got in. And I got into Yale Law School. I was like, wow, <laughs> see, if I can go to Yale Law School, I should go to Yale Law School. So I went to Yale Law School and I was like, okay, what do you have to do to do well in this place? Like, okay, sign me up. So, um, which is what I call drift, which is when you, yes. and I've written a lot about drift, which is when you make a decision by not deciding or by making the decision that sort of is the most obvious one or the one that the people around you expect you to make. Like you become a doctor because both your parents are doctors. Mm-hmm. You get married because everybody else is getting married. Or you take a job because somebody offered you a job. And that's kind of why I went to law school, which I don't regret. I had an amazing experience in law school. I got to clerk for yes. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. It was an amazing experience, but I certainly didn't do it in a mindful, thoughtful way. I learned, I've learned a lot about that. So, of course, I've read about that experience, and I'd like you to share a little bit with our listeners. Talk about clerking for Sandra Day O'Connor. Well, Sandra Day O'Connor is an extraordinary person. She was the first female Supreme Court justice, so, um, but she was, she's just a very kind of matter-of-fact, practical person. She's a very warm person, so it was really it was a lot of fun to clerk for her. Um, it was a lot of work. Clerkships last a year. That's what is the typical thing. Um, and it's a very, very intense experience. Um, she had three, there were four clerks altogether, which is again, typical for a, an active justice. And, um, so it was a, it was like a whole thing. And I remember when we got there realizing like, oh my gosh, this is the big time because, yeah. Um, we walk in and there was no security, like there was no badge or anything. And I was like, don't they need, like, don't the security guards need like some kind of form of ID? And they said, oh no, they, they've memorized your picture. I was like, oh my gosh, like they know us by like actual face. Like we don't even have a security badge. That was crazy. That's when you make it. I was like, this is, I bet now it's not like that because this was before so much that's happened. I bet now the security is much tighter, but um, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place, and I have so much respect and admiration for the for the work of the Supreme Court um, and the justices. So it was really an honor um, and just like such a, a such an extraordinary experience to be able to um, uh, to have that position. When when you when you look back at that, I mean, it's an incredible role and it's historically important. What 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 was most impressive about just the the, the workings of the Supreme Court? And was there anything that disappointed you about it? The thing that impressed me most was, you know, the thing about the Supreme Court is many people have very strong feelings that some of the justices are wrong. You know, like they profoundly disagree with the justices and they think, you know, they have a completely wrong idea. But the thing is, all of the justices um, are extremely earnest and um, sincere in their own desire to uphold their vision of the ideals of the United States. And the fact about the United States is people have different ideas about what those ideals are and how you best put them into work and how you interpret law. And it's appropriate that people disagree and these things work out over time. And, 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 but everyone was doing their work at the very highest level. Like everyone was incredibly conscientious. Everybody, you know, was, nobody was slacking off. Nobody mm-hmm. was corrupt. Everybody was trying to do their best work at all times, like at the very highest level. And that was just exhilarating because the fact is about the world, like most people, it's like everybody's doing like 80%. You know, it's like it's a busy day. It doesn't really matter. I don't really care. This is you know, this is like everybody really took, took it very, very seriously. Like when people would come in and argue, I remember there was a huge snowstorm. Basically, all the federal government shut down. Mm. But the Supreme Court stayed open because the chief justice said, look, these, these lawyers have come in to argue. They've been preparing. They're ready to go today. If we can possibly open our doors and let them make yeah. their case right now today, we have an obligation to, like, let that go forward. And so, yeah, I mean, it was um, every time they put on their robes and sat there, I mean, it, it was really, it really gave me a chill 
Um, it was so it was it, it, it just reminds you of, um, you know, just kind of the ideals of the United States. It, was, it really it really was that. Um, and again, it's not that everybody agrees with of all of them. And, I'm, you know, people disagree. But from their own standpoint, the justices are doing the right thing and trying to do the right thing. And that's all a person can do in this world is to try to do the right thing. When you look at the process and uh, when you get that close to the way this is all going down, what did you do after you left this clerkship? Well, it was during the clerkship that I got an idea for what would end up being my first book, which is called Power, Money, Same Sex, A User's Guide. So I had started doing massive amounts of research and that's something that all my life I've done, and like I'm doing it right now. I will do massive amounts of research on random subjects just because I feel like it. So I was doing this massive research. But I was getting to the point where I was thinking, wow, this is really the kind of thing somebody would do if they were going to write a book about right. it. And I, so I was beginning to think about the fact, like, well, maybe I would try to write a book about this. But my clerkship ended, and so I went to go work for the Federal Communications Commission um, for working for the chairman there. Um, and that was a super exciting job, and there were like it was like an amazing time to be there because it was full of like really super smart people. My husband randomly ended up there too, even though we were already like having nothing to do with me. It was just mm-hmm. a bizarre coincidence. And a lot of people who I'm still friends with to the to this day um, were there at the same time with me. So I was there, I think, for like a year or something like that. And that was when I was beginning to think like, okay, well how do you become a writer? Like, I, right. I didn't know how to do it. And so um, I, it was at some point, I like in Washington, D.C., I went to the bookstore and got a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal. And I literally just followed the directions in there. So I was doing that in my free time while I was working at the Federal Communications Commission. And then when that job ended, um, my husband also wanted to switch out of law. So we left the FCC, we moved to New York, and we both stopped paying our bar fees yes. and switched careers. Tell me about the, the, the first title you chose to research, not even necessarily expecting a book to come out of it, but clearly your heart was behind it, Power, Money, Fame, and Sex. Why that title? Why those themes? Well, it can't, I had, I, often my, my book ideas are just like my obsessions will come like with a single word or a single phrase, like in right. a very memorable moment. They'll just hit me. And so um, I'm very subject to epiphany, which is one of my favorite things about myself. Um, So I was out. I was going for a walk during my lunch hour. I was looking up at the Capitol Dome against the blue sky. And just I just asked myself a rhetorical question. I was like, what am I interested in that everybody else in the world is interested in? Like, what is the most interesting thing? And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex. And those ideas hit me like, power, money, fame, sex. And, um, and that's just, and then I was like, oh my gosh, I just have to go off and research these and how they fit together and what they mean and how to think about them. And, um, and all my, usually with my books, like I wrote a biography of Winston Churchill too. Like I like taking a gigantic subject and trying to distill it down into a very, a book that is very accessible and really like conveys what I think are the most important ideas. So something like power, money, fame, sex, that's what I like. I like a huge subject like that. And then the, how do you get it down into a manageable fun, you know, yes. book that's fun to read? Um, I like that challenge. Do you have a, kind of a co-writer with you as you're going through this process? No. No. I do all my work myself. When you, you mean like a research assistant? Uh, it could be research. It could be grammar. It could be editorial. It could be uh, a whole lot of no. different things. No. How do you take something that is so massive and broad and the research you're doing is so specific, tangible and somewhat kind of like scientific and boring. And yet then you bring it around full circle so that it's entertaining and practical. That's a, that, I mean, it's a pretty big swing there, Gretchen. Um, well, I feel like that's the challenge um, that I enjoy. And I always begin by taking gigantic amounts of notes. So I will just take notes. I mean, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages um, like I'll just be reading anything that I think would pertain to my subject and, um, and, uh, and, and put it in one giant document. And then at a certain point, I'll start to feel like, okay, I've, I've begun to form my own ideas. Like I've begun to come to conclusions now and everything that I'm researching is just more of the same. I'm not, I'm not covering new ground. It's just reinforcing, um, what I already have established or mm-hmm. have in my notes. And so I'm not, I'm not getting anything new. And that's when I then go through and figure out, well, how would you structure it in a way to convey all these hundreds of pages of random notes 
into something that would make sense to somebody else who doesn't, you know, I read yeah. all those books so you don't have to. Um, <laughs> yes. And so, and then, then, and then it's a struggle to find a structure, which is often a huge, huge problem. I mean, with the happiness project, I think I, I mean, if you read it now, you're like, this is the most obvious structure of all time. It took me four complete rewrites um, of a sample chapter before my agent was like, okay, the structure works. Um, so, so sometimes even, even when all the research is done, the structure is very, is very important and very, mm -hmm. and can be very, very uh, elusive. And then once I have the structure, it's just, it's really articulating my ideas and trying to explain often very complex ideas in a way that's accessible to somebody else. And um, that's my idea of fun. <laughs> I mean, I do that in my free time. I like, I like do that for work. And then on the weekends I do it for fun. So um, that's okay. <laughs> that's, we all have our vices. Broad interests. Um, yeah. You, uh, when you write, even if it is your interest, are you writing for you or are you writing thinking, you know what, I bet there's a huge market of people that, that want to learn more about Churchill or John F. Kennedy or the Happiness Project? You know, it's funny. I never really think about the reader as like a person outside myself. It's more like I want to convey my ideas in the, like, in the most clear, concise, entertaining way. Mm. Um, so it's really just about on the page. Um, I don't really, I don't really think about like I don't worry about someone else. It's more like what is the platonic ideal of the language. So like right. if I have something that's very wordy and jargony, it's not like I'm like oh well, pe most people don't know what this an implementation implementation intention is. I need to change it. I'm just like ugh, yuck. I don't like seeing that on the page. Like that doesn't make any sense. Can I can I find a clearer way to do it? So it's it's really about like just the the words on a page trying to make them as good as possible the happiness project you brought that up as well an incredible book great work what was the genesis of it i so i was finishing up my biography of jfk and so i was starting to like have more mental bandwidth because i that book was coming to an end and um, i was in a city bus in the pouring rain and I had one of these rare opportunities for reflection that you don't often get in everyday life. And I looked out the window and I thought, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, I want to be happy. And I realized I never thought about whether I was happy or if I could be happier. And I thought, you know, I should have a happiness project. And it was just like Power, Money, Fame, Sex. It was like happiness project. And um, that's how it came to me. And I went out to the library the next day, got this giant stack of books. And like I say, this is something that happens to me all the time. Mm -hmm. I didn't think anything of it. So I started reading all these books about happiness, taking all these notes about happiness. And, um, but what I found is that it was so fascinating and so giant and so, so limitless that, you know, then, it, then I was like, oh, okay, how would I structure a happiness project? And as I was thinking about it, just doing it for myself, and then I realized this is such a big idea. Maybe this should be my next book. Um, so it started out just an idea for me and my own interests and for myself, um, but then it just seemed like such an interesting subject that I thought it was big enough to be a book, um, to you know, to be a book that I could. I mean, to write a book, you've got to be interested in something in a major be. way, not a fleeting way, a major way. I was like, okay, I could be interested in this in a major way, and of course, I've been writing about happiness ever yes. since, so I'm still enthralled. So. Um, so that was a that was a lucky a lucky epiphany. Give give us some of the lessons that you learned during that 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 journey, and that you continue to learn, Gretchen, along the journey, because that's 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 the core of your podcast. It's still the core of your work, being truly happy and joy filled. So what what have you learned along the way that you want to share with us today? I think the most important thing that I've learned is that we can build a happy life only on the foundation of our own nature, our own values, our own interests. Um, and that there is no magic one-size-fits-all solution. And if people tell you, well, the secret to happiness is X or the secret to good habits is Y, it's like maybe not because right. they're like we're all – in a lot of ways we're very much alike, like each other, but the differences are very important. And, um, and one of the things, one of my, I wrote 12 personal commandments and my, my first one is to be Gretchen. And the more I think about like, well, what is true for me? What is my nature? Like, can I accept myself and expect more for myself? What does that look like? Um, mm. I, then my life has become happier. And the same thing with habits is I see so many people kind of beating themselves up because they're like, you know what? 
I keep telling myself I'm going to get up early and go for a run, and I don't, I'm lazy, I don't have any self-control, I don't have any willpower, I don't know why I can do it, because here it is, my, like, my spouse can do it, no problem, why can't I do it? I'm like, that's totally to be expected, that is not a surprise. Something that somebody else can do easily does not mean that's going to come easily for you. We mm-hmm. need to set this up in a different way. Maybe you're married to a morning person who's very energetic first thing in the day, and you're a night person, and you're at your most energetic and creative much later in the day. And so what you need to do is try to exercise later in the day. Because just because it works for someone else set up one way, or because I can argue why it makes sense, like, oh, I can, I can give you 10 reasons why everybody should exercise in the morning. But the fact is, a lot of people won't. Because they're yeah, night people and they can't get up early and go and exercise. Like, they're just not setting themselves up for success. And so, it's again, it's like, well, what's true for you? What's true for me? You know, um, in some ways I'm very typical. In some ways I'm very idiosyncratic. Um, it's like, uh, you know, uh, in, better than, in my book about habit change, Better Than Before, there's a chapter called, um, I'm absolutely unique, just like everybody else. And that's, that's how we are. So you have to think about that when you're trying to set up your own happiness. You mentioned, uh, I was trying to learn about accepting myself and expecting more for myself. And when I hear that, I think of all the guys, all the ladies that are trying to do both. As you were diving deeper through the Happiness Project to accept yourself and expect more of yourself and from yourself, give us some tangible kind of angles into that on, on how we can do this in our own walk. Well, you know, I think this is one of the tensions within happiness. It's like no one knows what that is because we all know that it's good to get out of your comfort zone. It's good to try to grow and to push yourself and to challenge yourself, and that's absolutely true, and, we, and, and also to expect more from yourself. Can I expect myself to do things that make me uncomfortable or deprive myself of certain things because over the long run it's going to make me happier or ask myself to do things that I don't really feel like doing because in the long run it's going to make me happier? But at a certain point, you have to accept that certain things are just true about you. And I, one of the things that I, I realized was true about me that made me much happier was one thing that many, many people find to be a tremendous source of happiness is music. Playing music, listening to music, going to concerts. I don't really like music that much. I just really don't. And I always thought, well, if I would just sit down and listen to music or if I would take a music class or if I would go to concerts, I would learn to lo- learn, love music. Mm. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just not that into music. But what I am into is children's literature. And for a long time, I kind of dismissed that because I'm like, well, I'm a grown-up. You know, I'm very sophisticated. I do all this adult reading. And my love for children's literature is kind of like the secret thing I don't really want to tell anybody about because it doesn't fit with my idea of who I am. Yeah. But then I'm like, no, I love children's literature. I'm a raving fan of children's literature. Now I'm like in three children's literature reading groups, which these are (laughs) all adults who are really into children's literature and young adult literature. I talk about it all the time. I'm always trying to shine a spotlight on the joys of reading children's literature as an adult. And it's like once I I was honest with myself about what I truly loved and what I truly didn't love, then I opened up all the space in my life for this, something that I love, and I have all these friends who all they want to do is talk about, like, oh, my gosh, Philip Pullman's Book of Dust just came out. <laughs> um, and then I don't have to pretend to be interested in music because the fact is you're not. Yeah, I'm not that interested in music. Were you interested in children's literature before your little ones showed up in your life? Oh, 100%. It has nothing to do with children. Uh, wh- do your Most kid- of the people in my children's literature, a lot of them don't even have children themselves. It's, it is a taste for a certain kind of literature, just like somebody who loves mysteries or science fiction or, you know, it's a kind of literature. Um, and so I have loved it my whole life. How old, are, how old are your babies? 18 and 12. Okay. And uh, has that passion for literature gone into their lives as well? My, not nearly to the degree that it's in mine. Okay. Um, my younger one loves to write, but she doesn't read as much as I do. Um, and my big one is very literary, but doesn't sit down and read books as much as I do. How, kind of an odd question, but man, I, I think a lot of us are sitting back curious about it. So here it comes. How did motherhood, when little, is it Eliza and Eleanor? Eliza. Eliza and Eleanor. How did that change even the way you show up professionally? I don't mean hour-wise, but even the way you engage professionally and then engage as a mom, now you're reading with them and you're tucking them in at night. And 
how how do you because i think a lot of us struggle with this how do you juggle all the balls that you were juggling and still do juggle so here's the thing if you're a person who's thinking i can never take time for myself how does a busy mom like me accomplish xyz thing on the side um you're probably um this is leads to my four tendencies framework an obliger you're somebody who meets external expectations but struggles to meet inner expectations that's the kind of thing that obligers feel um so um i'm not sure that i mean being a mother certainly changed me personally and it influenced my work and that i write a lot about my own experiences um but i don't think it changed um from uh i don't think it changed it much actually do you think it sharpened the uh, the pencil a little bit more to, and made your work that was going to come later on even more effective? I mean, don't you think maybe, maybe ex- because it's like it's a, it's a very universal life experience that I share with people, and so I'm able to talk about it from personal experience because it's like yeah, I know what it's like to have a newborn, or I know what it's yeah. like to be, um, you know, worried about whether someone's you know, has to memorize the multiplication tables. Like I've just been through that myself, you know, so I think it, it, it increases my, the, um, that I, that I understand from the inside, um, what something as major as parenthood feels like. You've bitten into some massive, massive, massive topics. The most recent is the four tendencies. Talk to us a little bit about why you wrote uh, on these four tendencies and what they are. So I got into the four tendencies because I was working on my book, Better Than Before, which is a book about the 21 strategies that we can use to make or break our habits. And as I was, and, you know, and as I was talking to people, because one of the ways I do my research is I just talk to people about their own experiences and try to make sense kind of, of patterns that I see or things that people say. And um, a friend said something, again, epiphany, right? Yeah. I get all these epiphanies. I had an epiphany <laughs> because a friend, we were having lunch, and I'm kind of a happiness bully. That's what Elizabeth calls me. My sister calls me. Um, and I was grilling her about her happiness and her habits, and she said to me, I know I would be happier if I exercised. And the weird thing is, when I was in high school, I was on the track team, and so, and I never missed track practice, so why can't I go running now? And I thought, well, why? Like, this just seemed to me like, bum, 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 why? Like, this is a really important question. I'd heard a lot of people say things like this, but I'd never really focused on it. But it's the same person, it's the same behavior. At one time it was effortless, now she can't do it. What was different? And, you know, you, I could think of ten different things mm-hmm. that it might have been about. What was going on? And so I started paying attention to that and other patterns that I was picking up. But I couldn't figure out how they all fit together. And it had a lot of implications for habits because it's like certain, certain people would say to me, like, well, I can't do that because I have no willpower. But I'm like, if I, I know your life and you have lots of willpower in other places. Yes. What's going on here? Like what, and, or people... People would say things like, oh, I would never keep a New Year's resolution because January 1st is an arbitrary date. I'm like, well, I don't understand. Why is everybody objecting to the arbitrariness of that? It never bothered me. Anyway, so I was trying to figure out how this related to habits. And then I had this central um, insight, which is that, uh, and I got it when I was looking at my own to-do list, which was that um, what was going on was a difference in how people met expectations. Outer expectations like a work deadline or a request from a friend and inner expectations, like my own desire to keep right. a New Year's resolution, my own desire to write a novel in my free time. So there are upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Upholders readily keep outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline to keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what's expected of them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they make everything an inner expectation. If it meets their standard, they'll do it. If it fails their standard, they'll push back. They tend to hate anything arbitrary, inefficient, irrational. Then obligers, and obligers is my friend on the track team. Obligers readily meet outer Mm -hmm. expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So no trouble going when there's a team and a coach waiting, but when you're just trying to go on your own, it's a struggle. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. And if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And so this framework had a lot of implications for habits, but it's actually much bigger than habits because it might explain, um, oh, I'm, like, I'm fighting with my husband all the time. Why, why are we fighting? Or I'm having this conflict with my boss. Why am I having this conflict with my boss? It's not really about a habit. It's about like, a difference it's, yeah. in perspective. Core. So those are the four tendencies. How does being aware of them impact the people who are aware of those tendencies? 
Well, I think it's in two ways. One is that if you understand yourself better, you know how to push your own buttons better. So, like, let's say you're an obliger and you really want to, um, like my friend, you really want to exercise and mm-hmm. you're not, you're not, you keep saying to yourself, I need to make time for myself. I need to put myself first. I need to motivate myself better and you're not succeeding. So I would say if you're an obliger, what you need to meet an inner expectation is outer accountability. You just need to plug in outer accountability. That is what obligers need. So take a class. Uh, work out with a trainer, work out with a friend who will be disappointed if you don't show up, think of your duty to be a role model for other people. Um, There's a million ways to have outer accountability once you realize that's what you need. Um, Or like a rebel, if you're like a rebel and you're like, I don't understand, everybody keeps telling me to make to-do lists and I keep trying to make them, but the minute I make a to-do list, it's like I I refuse to do it. I'm like, yes, that's exactly what we would expect from rebels. Many rebels have reported feeling exactly the same way. Here's a bunch of strategies that rebels use so that they can harness the power of the to-do list without igniting that spirit of resistance that can make it hard for rebels. So once you know that about yourself, it's like, okay, this isn't a surprise. You don't have to beat yourself up about it. Here's some solutions. And I also think it gives us more compassion for other people because it's like you're acting the way you do because you just see the world in a slightly different way from me. I don't have to take it personally. I don't have to feel like I'm right and you're wrong or you're right and I'm wrong. It's just like, okay, if you're this way and I'm that way. Okay, I'm an upholder. I am an upholder. I'm an upholder and um, I'm annoyed with you because you keep asking me, like, why are we doing this? Why is this the deadline? Why does it need to be 10 pages long? Can't I give Mm -hmm. it to you on Monday? And I'm like, can't you just – I'm like, it just would be just faster if you just went ahead and did it. Like, why do we have to have this conversation? But now I'm like – a questioner has to have their questions answered. So I need to take the time to give you the robust justifications that you need to get on board, and then you'll be fine. Understanding the four tendencies can also help you show compassion for other people because you realize that if there's some kind of conflict or frustration or puzzlement that you're feeling, it's, it's not that one person's right and one person's wrong. It's just that people have different perspectives. And so when you mm-hmm. understand how people see things differently – you can figure out how to set things up so that you both succeed. And also you don't take it personally um, if there's something that, that they need or that they ask or that they want from you um, that's different from what you would expect. Do other people that are on your team, in your workplace, in your family need to be on board for this to be effective? No. And this is, this is one of the things that comes up in all, like from the Happiness Project on, it's like, the sad fact about all of these stuff is yeah. that the only person we can change is ourselves. Um, and you cannot change other people or give other people homework and make them get on board with something. But it's also true that when I change, a relationship changes. And when I change, the atmosphere of my workplace or my household or whatever will also change. And so often we can change a situation by changing ourselves. And I think, you know, a lot of times with the four tendencies, I've heard from people where like whole workplaces will do it, or like yeah. a lot of, or like whole families will do it around like the dinner table because it's fun and interesting, and people feel like they get all this insight. But if somebody doesn't want to get, doesn't want to do it, it's you can still understand yourself better, and that's going to allow you to engage with other people better. And so I don't, I don't think, I don't think we should ever wait for other people to be excited to undertake these kinds of things because. Sometimes they're just not interested in doing it. My own husband, like, he, he is, like, the last person who would do a happiness project. Um, My wife doesn't know I have a podcast or yeah. I've written a book or that I travel the world as a speaker. So I, I, I yeah. feel your pain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it just um, you know, don't wait. Don't wait for other people to get, um, to, get to, to join you because right. you might wait forever. You, you, I think the way we begin a book or a project, the words we use matter. You quoted from the Journal of Thomas Merton, uh, according to you, a rebel, and I agree. Uh, And I'll read it to you in case you don't have it in front of you. But it it says, finally, I'm coming to the conclusion that my highest ambition is to be what I already am. Tell me what that quote means and why you chose it on the front side of this book. Well, I think it goes to this this lifelong challenge that we have, which is to know ourselves. Because back to what we were talking about earlier, I really feel like we can only build a happy life based on a knowledge of ourselves, of our own nature, our own temperaments, our own interests. And you think, well, that's so easy because all I do is hang out with myself all day. How hard is it to know myself? But it's actually very hard to know yourself because we're so distracted by the way we wish we were, the way we assume we are, the way we think everybody is. Or, you know, doesn't everybody love to shop? Doesn't everybody love wine? Doesn't everybody love skiing? Doesn't everybody love football? Um, 
that it's it, it's very hard to understand ourselves. And um, and so I think that that Merton quote just beautifully um, summarizes this this effort for our lives, which is to really understand ourselves, um, you know, in a very profound way. So you, you ask others a lot about their habits and their happiness. What is a habit, Gretchen, that you have undertaken or something that you do daily or weekly that makes you happy, that brings you life? What, what fills your bucket? Well, a thing I think that many people would be surprised by is I'm a crazy low-carb person. Hmm. I really eat very low-carb, so my only carbs are like nuts and vegetables. So, like, I don't eat sugar. I don't eat flour. I don't eat rice. I don't eat pasta. I don't eat starchy vegetables. And I don't really even eat much fruit. And you're still happy. And I love it. This is almost unexplainable. I love it because all those cravings are gone. Um, Because I have a tremendous sweet tooth. I never feel a sweet tooth. The food is very satisfying. So I used to get like just shaking with hunger all the time when I ate a different way. It was really inconvenient. Um, And I don't have that anymore. And I just feel like a lot of noise related to like food. Like, can I have it now? Can I have it later? One Mm -hmm. piece, two pieces. And I wrote about the difference between being an abstainer and a moderator. I'm definitely an abstainer. (laughs) And so I'm not saying this would work for everyone. But for me, it has been a way of eating that has just been very, very um, freeing. And sometimes people say to me, like, well, like, like, what? how sad to live life when you're never going to have a brownie. And I'm like, not eating a brownie makes me so much happier than brownies ever did. And um, do so... You, do you find yourself healthier? Not just happier and freer, but are, do you feel more vibrant? Oh, I'm def. Well, I don't know that I feel more vibrant, but I'm definitely healthier. Yeah. You know, when people finish your book, in particular the most recent one, but really all of them. It's a, it's a summary in many regards of our efforts and our lives and our emotions and our hearts. What do, you, what do you hope they leave with, Gretchen? Really, you know, a greater understanding of themselves and how they, would, how they would go about it. I mean, I remember the nicest thing that anybody said about the Happiness Project was a friend of mine said, I've never read a book that made me think more about myself. And I was like, that's exactly what I was hoping for, because I'm just there to be kind of a stand-in and everybody should think about themselves. And like with the four tendencies with better than before, it's like the better than before there's 21 strategies. Some work for you. Some work for me. Some work at sometimes in our lives, sometimes work for like, this is for you to choose for yourself. The four tendencies, the everybody's in a different place. Everybody's married to a different tendency. Everybody's got a different tendency of a boss. Like everybody's in a different situation. But this is meant to give you a vocabulary and a way of thinking about things where you can just maybe see things more clearly. I think with happiness and habits, human nature, it all feels very abstract and everything's mm-hmm. tangled up and everything else. It's hard to think clearly. And so I try to, like, break it down so that, so that it's easier to think about it and think, like, well, what would I do differently or what could I do tomorrow if I wanted to be happier or healthier or more productive or more creative? There are people listening right now that are thinking, you know, I, does this woman have any clue how busy I am? Like, I, I don't have time to be reflected on what will make me happier. So for those of us out there that are wondering, uh, how can we even take the next step or the very first step or find that time, Gretchen, how, what advice might you offer? I don't think it takes any time. Yeah, good, good way to say it. So what does it take? I mean, I think you just have to, like, start thinking about it. It's funny because there's, like, this, there's this sort of thought in the world that everybody's obsessed with happiness and everybody's kind of stumbling over their own feet because everybody's thinking about happiness all the time. I'm like, in my observation, people don't think about happiness nearly enough. I certainly didn't until I wrote The Happiness Project. Like, I never gave it a... I I was just thinking about what I needed to get done and sort of, you know, my everyday life. I never really stepped back and thought, like, well, how could I be happier? So I think even in the busyness of your everyday life, you're standing in the line at the drugstore, just think, like... You know, I wonder if I would be happier if I went to bed earlier. You know, for a long time, I've been thinking I should try to get at least seven hours of sleep. What if I set an alarm? What if I set an alarm to go off at 1030 every night? And then I could have a snooze alarm and I would take 10 minutes to get ready for bed. And then I would really try to be in bed with the lights off by like 1045. Could that work for me? And then you're like, okay, yeah, I could try that. I could try that tonight. That doesn't take any time. Mm. But it takes like you just have to decide that you want to think about it. Gretchen, we're going to shift gears now into what we call the Live Inspired Seven. Uh, seven questions that all of our previous guests have been asked. Number one is this. What's the best book that you've ever read? No, I never answer that question. You have to. No, I won't. Because it's too, there's like, there's no way to answer because it's like, 
there's children's literature, there's novels, there's, 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 you know, I mean, there's apples and oranges. I, I, it's like, it's, it's, I, I, I cannot choose. I love books too much. I cannot pick one. I, then I literally can't pick one. I don't, I don't have one. I, I have a thousand. How about this? From the books that have informed your most recent work on the four tendencies, which, which one would you say, gosh, John, you've really got to consider stepping into this one. So outside of the four tendencies, which, which other piece informed how, uh, how you created this, this, this space? I need an answer. You, 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 I'm not going to let you off that easy. Um, this book, this book wasn't very literary in its yeah. conceptions. Um, I'll say the essays of George Orwell. How about that? Tell me about the the essays. I just I feel like George Orwell is just a masterful writer, yeah. and it just his choice of words, his his ability to combine unexpected ideas succinctly, he's always surprising. Um, so, as an inspiration for my writing, not that I'm anywhere near it, but in terms of just like always reminding me, like I just kind of constantly reread his essays, and I and I would say like that's I'm always like. Reminds me of what can be done with an, with with kind of a nonfiction, right. just you know, description analysis of something. My style is totally different from George Orwell's, um, but uh, but that's I, that is that's a, a big model for me. Tomorrow, Gretchen Rubin, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you with millions. What would you do with that newfound wealth? Probably nothing. No, nothing changes. No, I don't think so. If your house caught fire, your apartment, I hear the fire trucks outside right now, so hopefully it's not preemptive. If your house caught fire and all living things and all living people are out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one, and you got to go, what, what would be the one item you would grab? My cell phone. Your cell phone. Very practical. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to be uh, enjoying that visit with? Yeah, my spiritual master, St. Therese of Lisieux. For those, and I'm one of them, who don't really know much about St. Therese, t- tell us about her. St. Therese is a Catholic saint. I'm not Catholic, um, but I read her memoir. Actually, Merton, we were talking about Thomas Merton. So Thomas Merton, um, who's kind of misanthropic, wrote about the little flower, about Mm -hmm. St. Therese of Lisieux. And I was like, that's interesting that he would be so interested in this kind of like young French woman saint. And she's uh, like a doctor of the church. So she's not Mm -hmm. just a saint. She's a super saint. And she lived, I think she died in 1873, or was she born in 1873? Anyway, around that time. And she died very young, like 23 years old. Um, and spent most of her life, much of her life in a cloistered convent with like 30 other nuns, some of which, some of whom were her sisters, her literal, like mm-hmm. biological sisters. And she wrote this book, Story of a Soul. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, it is, you know, like one of my resolutions is to imitate a spiritual master. St. Therese is my spiritual master. Uh, I've read her this memoir of hers, you know, maybe ten times. I have a collection of like thirty biographies of her. A lot of listeners and readers send me like their Saint Therese memorabilia. So like somebody <laughs> sent me a framed picture of her, and somebody sent me this. Thing. Her one of her symbols is roses. Yes, I will send down a shower of roses. So somebody sent me this bracelet made of roses. Um, and she she's funny. It's nice to have a spiritual master who's funny. And she just, she is just um, has this very unusual way of thinking, and um, and uh, you know, and I often find myself just thinking about different passages in this memoir when she's describing things. Again, she's very surprising. She doesn't say and, what you think she's going to say. And at such a young age, what? Wh- yeah. Why'd she die so young? Tuberculosis. Okay. We're going to shift gears a little bit from your favorite saint, but I think it might be advice you received from her. So the next question is, what is the best advice that you've ever received and from whom? The best advice I ever received was from me, which is to be Gretchen. That is the advice that I give myself every day and try to live up to, which is just to, you know, it's what we've been talking about throughout this whole discussion, which is know yourself, accept yourself, expect more from yourself, try to be yourself. Um, And it's hard. Mm. 
Gretchen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a 5B because I think it's so important that I am John and you are Gretchen and my wife is Beth and we move on from there, that, that we all are uniquely who we already are. What, what's one bit of advice that you've discovered that makes you more effective in being uniquely Gretchen? Hmm. What's advice that helps me be more uniquely Gretchen? Meaning, how do we not cave to the willpower of others or the the comments below our our blogs? All, all the all the noise coming in from the outside that informs us and encourages us to be anybody else. Mm. Oh, right. Uh, somebody. Um, well, again, I don't. I'm not sure that this was advice that I got, um, but it's a conclusion that I reached that's very comforting to me in those kinds of situations, which is a strong voice repels as well as attracts. Mm. Um, and the fact is, I'm going to put my stuff out there, and some people aren't going to like it. Like, and that's just part of what happens when you put your stuff out there. And if I try to make it universally acceptable, it will be so boring and meaningless that no one will care at all. And so whenever somebody kind of doesn't like my stuff, I'm like, I am who I am. I write about, what my, about my experience and my conclusions. Some people find that interesting, and some people absolutely do not. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, you know, um, but uh, I think um, if, you're, if you're thinking about, like, putting yourself forward, you have to be willing to accept the fact that it's not going to be universally. Always. Uh, yeah. What, would, what, what advice would you tell your 20-year-old self? Be Gretchen. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew it. All right, dude. So you've made it through the gauntlet. We're at the final question. It has been said that all great people, writers, parents, etc., can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you, Gretchen Rubin, want your one sentence to read? I think I would want it to say, she did what she set out to do. Gretchen Rubin, you have indeed done what you set out to do. (laughs) Yale graduate, Supreme Court, darn near justice, great writer, great podcaster, great friend, and a great guest today. I really appreciate the time. Well, I so enjoyed the conversation. I feel like we could talk for hours. I look forward to it. Well, my friends, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, take a moment right now, rate the show wherever you pulled on your podcast. It's a quick way to not only give me a thumbs up for the guests that we're bringing on and the work that we're doing, but also to get the word out. Although the show, in some regards, it's still just launching. We're just barely turning the corner on year one. More than 650,000 downloads and growing. That's you, by the way. Thanks for helping us spread the word. Take a moment right now, rate the show, let us know how we are doing, and then do me an even bigger favor. Tell your friends about it. You can use social media, Facebook, Twitter. You can email out to your database. Tell the people that you work out with or worship with or work with that you listen to information, inspirational content that comes to you from John O'Leary and the Live Inspired Network. Thanks so much for listening to this show for this time. And until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today's your day. Live Inspired.